You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Our desire is to honor and share the best parts of the Christian contemplative traditions so that this collective wisdom might serve the flourishing of humanity, all beings, and all of creation. My name is Ben Kesey, and I lead the development team at the Center for Action and Contemplation. I want to thank all of you who are generous donors, giving freely and cheerfully to make this work possible. If you've been impacted by these podcast conversations and are inspired to invest in the future of CAC's mission and work, twice per year, we invite your financial support. To contribute, go to cac.org donate to make a gift. Thank you so much. Welcome to season two of Another Name for Everything. Casual Conversations with Richard Rohr, responding to listener questions from his new book, The Universal Christ, and from season one of this podcast. This podcast was recorded in a tiny hermitage on the grounds of the Center for Action and Contemplation, a nonprofit founded by Richard Rohr, located in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Because of that, you may hear neighborhood sounds such as sirens, dogs, and the occasional peacock scream. That's a real thing. Look it up. We are your hosts. I'm Bree Stoner. And I'm Paul Swanson. We're staff members of the Center for Action and Contemplation and students of this contemplative path, trying our best to live the wisdom of this tradition amidst broken heaters, calls from school nurses, and the shifting state of our world. This is the first of 12 weekly episodes. Today, we're tackling your questions on the theme, Jesus' Incarnation and the Christ Resurrection. Well, Richard, we spent the first season of Another Name for Everything exploring the themes in each chapter of your new book, The Universal Christ. And it was so rich and so deep that we realized this conversation is just far from over. (laughs) There's way too many things we still want to talk about and circle around and spend more time with. And so we asked our listeners to turn in their most pressing and burning questions and Paul and I were just um, overwhelmed with the vulnerability and the care really? and the concern and the, wow. the curiosity and the desire to want to talk about these themes some more. Wow. So, Makes me happy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so as we continue this dialogue um, on the universal Christ through these questions, we wanted to begin with an episode that serves somewhat as a review to the, this good, concept. Good, um, As an overview between the relationship of Jesus and Christ and the distinction, because it's so challenging to absorb the first time through, right? I do understand that. I had years to work with it, so it isn't shocking to me anymore. But if you never heard this, it sounds unorthodox. Mm. The irony is it's supremely orthodox. (laughs) Of course, that's my opinion, but I think it's true. Well, thank you for... Um, your willingness to just spend some more time talking about this. And to kick us off, here's a question from Joseph uh, from Newcastle, Pennsylvania. We love this question because it's sort of the ultimate overview of the whole whole enchilada. Mm. (laughs) He says, yes, Jesus and Christ are not the same thing. I get that. Christ existed from the moment God created matter. Christ is the logos, the blueprint for everything. Christ is the eternal union of spirit and matter. Every bush is burning and always was. Boy, he got a lot. Yeah, right? That's good. He goes, I get that. But was is the Christ in Jesus? 
Did the Christ reside there in Jesus while he walked on earth as the Christ resides in us? Jesus was fully God and fully man. Am I fully God and fully man or only a tiny little bit of God and fully Mm. man? Am I fully God, but I just don't know it yet? Jesus was this manifestation of God and man, but the Christ was in every human since the beginning of creation, wasn't he? So do Christ and Jesus meet if they are separate? I'm sorry if this is a little confusing to this aging Catholic, former Catholic, former fundamentalist, Jewish sympathizer, (laughs) sinner, reprobate, healing human. (laughs) Wow, there's a lot of questions in there, but they're very basic. I can see why you started with this. So yes, Jesus was objectively Christ from his birth in Bethlehem, his conception in Nazareth. Just like you and I are objectively Christ. Now his human journey, again, just like us, was the slow coming to that realization. Uh, Like when uh, Peter calls him, you are the Christ. He doesn't say you're wrong, but the very fact he asks the question tells me, at least that's a good interpretation, that he's still coming to an awareness. So it's the difference between objectivity and subjective awareness of that objectivity. Forgive me for the big words. Uh, And the question question you're referring to is when Jesus says, who do they say I am? Is that the... Yes, uh right. Uh, So let's start with Jesus. I would say, I think we're saying, he is fully God, and yet only by reason of his unity with the Father and the Spirit. (laughs) And we didn't know, I I know the normal language doesn't require that. So I'd say, okay, he's fully God, yeah. Mm -hmm. But really, if we want to be consistent, it's his union with the flow of the Trinity that makes him fully God. And I would say he was fully human. That's been the harder and slower one for us to recognize and accept. You and I are fully human, which gives us all kind of permission and freedom to be imperfect, to make mistakes. It's, it's not a limitation, it's actually a freedom. I'm, I'm just and I am always human. Um, but we're not fully divine. <laughs> uh, we're implanted divinity, we're participatory in divinity, the, the language I've been using, I don't know if I used it in the first set. He is the includer, we are the included. He is the universal savior, we are the saved. But we are a part of that union, and that's salvation. That's it, that we've been drawn in to this mystery of the divine and the human coexisting. But for us, it's a gift. For him, it's an identity. His, his divine human amalgam, if I can call it that. Does that answer some of his questions? Yeah, I think, I mean, it brings up the question of, um, you know, when Jesus is inviting us to walk the path of becoming as he is, you yes. know, be one as I am one yeah. with the Father, my Father and your Father. I think Mm -hmm. one of the things that's so difficult for us and that I think is the wrestling point of Joseph's question is 
well, am I also capable then of attaining that same level of union with God? Or is that just sort of a, a unique manifestation that could only happen in a particular way in Jesus? So is, is that accessible to us? Well, you know, I think of that line is John 14, where he says, uh, you will do what I have done. You will do greater things than I have done. That is pretty amazing. There is a clear passing on of identity that what I am, you also are, which he has just said in John 14. Uh, John 14 is one of the best, you know, studies on the spirit. And we'll get to that, I'm sure, later. But uh, so we get to realize our divinity according to our own capacity. Uh, I can't pretend that I am the Christ since the Big Bang. At least I have no memory of being around at the Big Bang. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But Jesus, once he came to his full realization, which is his risen state, Uh, I would think his human mind came to that realization. You and I, and it's already mind-blowing, we had it from our Big Bang, the moment of our conception. Mm. I've often thought thought we should celebrate our conception day more than our birthday. I told that to my mother once. I, I was home on June 20th. I said, you know what, Mother? Today's my conception day. She says, what do you mean by that? I said, well, just don't talk about that. (laughs) 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 Typical German. (laughs) Uh, But do you get my point that um, according to our capacity, and our capacity is to be a limited version, but still a very real version, objectively, of the divine image. But Mm -hmm. we're not the eternal Christ but we're Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like holograms. Like that. That's good. Yeah. Yes, like holograms. Perfect. This ties in well with our next question. Um, and I know that you get this question a lot in, in different variations, but I'm just going to bring it here in the words of Chelsea from California. Richard, how would you explain the difference between pantheism and this theology of the universal Christ? That's real good to get that clarified right at the beginning. Uh, It seems like just inserting a syllable, but it's a completely different worldview, all right? Pantheism, pan means everything. Theism refers to God. So pantheism, a simplified way of saying it is everything is God. Everything is divine. And uh, the Orthodox tradition insisted on making a necessary distinction uh, that we can't live up to being the the agent. We just can't. (laughs) That we started all of this and we are the same. We are coterminous with God. It gives us an arrogance that we can't live up to. So uh, by inserting the, an E-N right in the middle, panentheism, God in all things, that was deemed to be acceptable. In fact, not just acceptable, but the message itself, that God is in all things. Uh, so 
I know, I'm sure I'm being criticized for being a pantheist, but that's really lazy thinking. It's cheap, a cheap shot, as we say, uh, for people to say that because they know there's a difference, but it's a way of uh, calling you a heretic, I guess, or wrong with one word. And so I'll, I'll give them one word back. I am a panentheist. Now, our word for that is incarnationalism. Mm -hmm. In the early church, it was the epiphany too, the, the showing forth of the divine through the human, uh, the manifestation. Uh, but it does take a little intellectual rigor. Uh, and I do mean little. It doesn't mm. take much thinking to make that distinction. <laughs> but it almost seems... Uh, ill-willed, how people want to accuse you of something simplistic so they can dismiss it. Mm -hmm. It's, as they say in logic, a straw man mm -hmm. that's easy to blow down. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, Richard Rohr's a pantheist. Yeah. No, it just isn't fair. And it, I, oh, go ahead. I think with uh, that phrase of the Christ-soaked world, you know, it's such a. Uh, You've a, always liked that. Phrase, I can't. I can't <laughs> keep it out of my off my lips. But just the way, if the Good. world is soaked with Christ, Already. that is a much different yes. way of explaining panentheism versus panentheism, um, which I think is a helpful reframing for folks trying to wrap their mind around this. Then you have the incarnation of Jesus coming out of the world. Mm -hmm instead of coming into the world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I, I know it's going to change your perception of Christmas. Uh, maybe it isn't as dramatic because he was here all the time. Well, the Christ was here all the time. But the personification came out of the world that was already Christ-soaked mm -hmm. from the beginning. Mm -hmm. As Ephesians says three times in the first chapter, from the beginning. Uh, but... Who of us can think in those big, we can't, so you can't blame anybody. Uh, as I keep saying, I just think the mind was not ready uh, to imagine such magnitude, uh, such infinity. When it points out the ways in which we're so much more comfortable with that dualistic split that you've been yeah. helping us see, you know, it's far easier for me to just say, nope, I'm fallen, I'm human. God is perfect and unchanging and up there, there somewhere. You go, that and so it that whole pantheist question, it's like it, it's trying to collapse it into a duality. It's a new muscle and not much harder to locate the panentheism, the incarnational instinct of, oh, I'm, par I'm part of this. Excellent. So, so I have a responsibility then. Oh, wait, yeah. I'm actually participating in the life of God. Well, that... That changes everything. It really changes everything. Because yeah. I don't have to steer the ship now. It is being steered. All I have to do is be a willing, conscious, loving participant. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't have to be a control freak. Mm. Which is, I think, really the disappointment of a lot of people and a lot of Christians. They appear to be control freaks. Because they're thinking they have to do it right. Yeah. Or they have to figure it out. We don't. Mm -hmm. I feel like we can summarize the entire collapse of our religious 
uh, traditions as the end of the control freak era. <laughs> like, we're all, but I think that's that's why we struggle is because it's the it's the loss of control that that indicates. Uh, yes. The idea that we're in this flow, we're in this movement, um, that's a lot harder. A lot harder, yeah. I'm sure you remember, the point you're, you're making so well is the way I wanted to end the book, where I said, you're already on the train, let me get it. Yes, I am saying that the way things work and Christ are one and the same. This is not a religion to be either fervently joined or angrily rejected. It is a train ride already in motion. The tracks are visible everywhere. You can be a willing and happy traveler or not. And that's how I wanted to end the book. Then we added on all these appendices. That's okay, too. Well, that ties in with um, a question from Nathan from Lynchburg, Virginia, where uh First, he wants to say, this book is one of the most profound and faith-altering books I've ever read. Now that I've finished it, I need to read it again. <laughs> I keep being told that. I think most of us feel that way. Um, he says, can you describe more of what you mean when you say resurrection is just incarnation taken to its logical conclusion? Can you give examples of this? How does this relate to your comment that incarnation is already redemption? And I think this is kind of where... He, very good. Headed. God, you're picking good letters. If the divine has implanted itself in everything that comes forth from the divine, then the divine doesn't die. <laughs> it's a seed of endless life uh, springing up from within us, as John's gospel says. Now, I admit that you can live a life that doesn't recognize that, doesn't live out of that. Uh, and that is why logically, people's logical mind needs uh, some notion like hell to give the permission for people not to jump on the train. Mm -hmm. And I think that's pretty obvious. Uh, so it's just that it's a shame it, it made God into a torturer, but put that to the side. If you don't have some notion of non-participation, you don't have free human beings. So uh, we want to maintain the notion of freedom. Now, once we've done that, let's still say that it's uh, uh, the incarnation is setting the train in motion toward inevitable resurrection. And it isn't even resurrection, it's eternal life. Because God doesn't die. Uh, now you can choose, I'm back to what I was saying before, you can choose for God to die in you by being hateful, by being cruel. Um, so, so you have your freedom. But things left to their own resources created by God, have a seed of immortality. And this is why we say this thing scandalous to some. Why we have to, well, this was the second reading yesterday at Mass, uh, where Yahweh is, or the Bible is promising a new heaven and a new earth. It doesn't say the old one is destroyed. It's just made new, made new. 
So it's not just humans, but it seems to be the whole of creation is moving toward this, this full maturation of the God seed planted within it. Uh, which makes you, on some level, an evolutionist. <laughs> I was just going to ask about that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't and once you start thinking, it's obvious. It's obvious. History is unfolding. Mm. And now our scientific mind has helped us to think that way. Mm. When the Hubble t- telescope tells us it's still expanding, and even at a faster pace, if that's the shape of the universe, then that's the shape of what God is doing. He's unfolding. And as you know, I, I think I say later in the book, for me, that's the meaning of the second coming of Christ. There was the personal body in Jesus. Now the unfolding mystery of the body of Christ is the second coming. And the second coming is nonstop. Well, it makes <clears throat> me think that... Um... You know, you you talk a lot about your love of nature shows, which I I do. I, love I was them watching too. them last night on, <laughs> on horses. Go ahead. Yeah, but I watch them as well with my boys, and uh, I'm also learning to see the world through their eyes of wonder. <clears throat> but when we are able to actually perceive the wholeness of this cosmic mystery that we're in and participating in, it kind of helps to locate me as a part of this divine expression in incarnation, how could it not already be redemption? Look, like just look. You know, I think we think from our perspective, the things that are happening, the things that are, you know, I mean, we do, we, we have the insight and consciousness to see everything that's wrong and everything that we're doing that's wrong. And yet I find that the ability to look with wonder at this created universe is a little bit of my access point to what you wrote about resurrection is incarnation taken to its logical conclusion. Resurrection is happening all the time Mm -hmm. in millions of ways and thousands of expressions. Everywhere all the time. And it's the pushback of death that makes it hard to see. (laughs) Uh, That that it pushes forward, but then it's undone. Pushes forward and then is undone. Mm And that's why the cross had to be given as this dramatic symbol of even the best will be undone. Uh, I don't know why God created the universe that way. I really don't. (laughs) That the undoing is the part of the remaking. And that's what we're saying in that thing you get tired of hearing me say, order, disorder, reorder. It's so hard to integrate disorder. The undoing of the doing. (laughs) It's the big fly in the ointment of almost everybody's mind. If it's moving toward resurrection, we want a straight line of Western progress. And uh, it's the undoing. Like, there's no doubt that our culture, Western culture in general, American culture in particular, is in a severe phase of undoing the amount of mental illness. I I was just in a supermarket yesterday, people screaming. Mm. Why are you screaming in a supermarket? (laughs) Uh, 
what makes so many angry, unhappy people? Uh, uh, and so if you give in to that, which it is easy to do, this is the shape of the whole world, the undoing. Uh, it's very hard to lose faith that this is all going somewhere. And maybe that's at the core of the biblical notion of faith. This all means something, this is still good, and this is still going somewhere. And that is planted in us. That's the divine. That's the seed, you know, because logically we don't, we can't create that. Logically, our democracy is being undone right now, to be very honest. It's being undone. And we just can't believe it. No, this could never happen to America. Um, but I, because I do love animals so much, uh, I just, I said it in one of my books somewhere, you know, the thought that almost every animal in nature and even in a, as a family pet dies a painful death. Mm-hmm. Almost every reindeer goes out and sits in a field and dies from a liver disease. I don't know what reindeer die of, but boy, this is nonsensical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm, that's going to be my first question of God. How come you shaped it that way? Mm-hmm. But the cross is telling us, this is the shape. Don't be afraid of it. We're still afraid of it, though. I am. Yeah. And I just don't like it. (laughs) I don't think any of us do. And I kind of just want to pause on what you said because it's hit me in such a profound way. This phrase, the undoing is part of the remaking. The undoing is part of the remaking. And how, what a a profound summary that is. It is. Of the um, relationship of the hope between Jesus and Christ. That it's like, somehow in the outpouring of his life, a violent death um, because of his threat to the empire, which for most of the disciples, most of the people watching would be this feeling of absolute loss. Like what a waste, what a waste. The only world they ever knew. What a waste of this gifted, you know, prophet, person, you know, rabbi, however they saw him. And yet the idea that you're saying is that nothing is ever wasted or lost. lost. Somehow the outpouring of our lives, the outpouring of everything that happens is woven into this remaking of something bigger, something good that takes, you know, an eternity perhaps to manifest. But I don't know. I just, I, I guess well, I'm, just, good. I'm needing to sit with that for a second because it is so, um, yeah, it's, it's nonsensical. Really. Yeah. It's it's op- it's like it's opposite to everything that our like you said our culture likes to see things very linearly in terms of you go to A and then B and then C and everything everything the progressions are always um, building building mm-hmm. in the you know and it's not cyclical it's it's not uh, the way that you just described the order disorder reorder of mm. the cross. So our worldview is both cyclical and linear. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I like yeah, the w- like a spi- the spi- spiral. That's why the spiral like is so spiral. helpful it in really my mind. Is. It because really is. Yes. It puts both of those together. Right. I like the way uh, theologian Walter Fluker talks about mm. hope is a belief in a stranger future. <laughs> so like it, stranger future. So something beyond even what we can even imagine. So I feel like if if that's part of the resurrection hope is like. You cannot see the resurrection in the midst of crucifixion, right? 
And so it's that hope in something beyond even our own understanding of what is what is possible. You got it. It's uh, yeah. It will always and forever be a mystery. I don't think there will come a moment in history where we say, "Oh, this makes sense." Yeah. It will never make sense. <laughs> so people who, as Paul says, are tied to logic or religion as a way out of this what he calls the Jews and the Greeks. Uh, He says they're going to both be disappointed Mm. because there's no way out of it. Mm. It's the absurd universe we're in and only the trust in an infinite love gives you a way out without becoming a total cynic. Mm. Uh. And we have these practical examples of that too. Like I'm just, again, thinking about how my experience as a mom, as a single mom, there's a lot of undoing. (laughs) There is a lot of like, uh, Paul and I were talking about this, getting ready for this season, but there, there are a lot of kitchen floor moments where I feel myself as undone. I feel my limitations. I feel unworthy, incapable enough of this role of being a parent. And yet somehow in my relaxation into that reality, here are these children who are themselves remaking and building up building building themselves into something new and i'm participating in that mystery and yet i have no idea where it's going to go and i have no sense of what that future is or even what their future is but that act of faith is in just the continuation of participating it's the not giving up that i'm just gonna you know so i guess i'm saying that to say that i think there is um I know you're saying the word nonsensical, and it is. It's, it doesn't it make is, sense to yeah. our minds, and yet we have so many examples uh, of what you're saying in our lives, that the undoing is the remaking. Is the remaking, yeah. Where does this burgeoning life constantly reappear from? <laughs> that it's never undone, despite our best attempts. Yeah. <laughs> and we certainly need to hold on to that right now with what's happening to this planet. Mm. Yeah. Has it ever happened at this big a rate? Mm-hmm. What what do they say? There were four extinctions, mass extinctions, or was it five? I don't know. Sure. But uh, <laughs> I don't know why I'm saying this. You can delete it. But that the only thing that survived were cockroaches, <laughs> cucaracha. <laughs> Where did you get this, Richard? <laughs> Which show were you watching? <laughs> cockroaches survived. The mass extinctions. If that that makes it even more nonsensical. Right. Why not elephants? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, why not elephants? Yeah. Uh, On that note. On that note, we're going to shift gears here a little bit um, with a question here from Karen from North Carolina. Um, And this has to do with historical Jesus. Um, So, Richard, do you believe that the historical Jesus was created and is different from the rest of us? Do you believe he was born no human father, of a virgin who was sinless all of her life, and that he himself lived a completely sinless life? Or do you believe he was a human being, just like the rest of us, except in the fact that he consciously realized his true relationship with God in Christ, which we have as well, and so was able to live his life from that perspective? So there's a lot there. Yeah, I know, but it has to be asked. I wonder first if you could define historical Jesus for folks who that's not oh, a part of their uh, vocabulary. Yeah. yeah. 
by the historical Jesus, we mean the Jesus who actively, physically lived on this earth for 30-some years, not the portrait that was created of him 30 years later in the Gospels and Paul's letters and so forth. Um, or the memory of Jesus that we live in now. So do I believe that this historical Jesus is different from the rest of us? I do. Now that's also an act of faith. I don't think it's necessary to make that act of faith to enjoy the gift of, that Jesus offers humanity and offers the soul. So let me make that very clear. That's, a, that's almost a, a gift to uh, help believers. Well, I keep using that phrase, a shortcut. Mm -hmm. If you want to get there quickly on the computer, you push the shortcut. Well, he becomes the shortcut so you don't have to argue about so many stages and, and understandings. But um, I'm going to still hold... And I think the Orthodox tradition would insist there was a uniqueness to Jesus. Keep using the word exclusive and inclusive. That he was, he included all the rest of us in his identity, which is why his love could be infinite. You and I are, we're more exclusionary. We, we can't handle that much. We can't hold that much as Jesus seems to be able to hold, uh, symbolized by his dramatic holding of suffering on the cross. So um, now, do we have to believe he was born of a virgin with no human father? Again, I can understand the archetypal symbolism of that belief. So uh, I'm not going to throw it out. If I found out tomorrow that Joseph really was his father, it really wouldn't bother me. But I've had years to study theology. Huh? I can still hold on to the archetypal symbolism. And what is that? That he was fully human and fully divine. So to say that, we've got to give him a divine father, in this case, and a fully human mother born under the law. That's good archetypal transfiguration. You know? So I can see why that was our belief. Now, do we have to make her sinless? That was a Catholic preoccupation. With, well, this is getting so complex for most people, but our notion of sin as moral purity. Mm -hmm. Whereas you and I, I think, here at the school anyway, would have come to understand sin as a chosen state of separation from God and not just moral purity. Mm -hmm. Cleaning up is the first stage. When you're still at the first stage of religion, you never get to growing up, you never get to waking up, you never get to showing up. You will define Mary as the sinless one. Okay, I'm not going to bother to throw it out. I'll throw it out. <laughs> uh, well, you were raised a good Protestant. I, yeah. You have the freedom to do that. No, You're, but I'm, I think what I'm noticing is that it's, um, like you said that, that it was the, the moral purity. How much of that may have just been 
that you know the theological patriarchal need to yes, justify yes. oh a woman's body could be a oh, vessel for oh. the sacred like, it has to be yes. morally untouched mm. so, yes. yeah oh it's yeah i mean i'm with you on that i really am i'm just trying to not upset people when i go to the mat i want to go to the mat for the right thing mm-hmm. and i don't want to go to the mat for something that's Largely symbolic language. Yeah. Uh, so I just, okay, I can accept that symbolic language. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you want to believe it had metaphysical identity to it, I want to leave her. Maybe it did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe Mary was immaculately conceived from the moment uh, Catholics believe that. I can see what they were trying to preserve. But in the 21st century, we don't have to love Mary. We don't have to have that to be true to love Mary. Mm-hmm. In fact, we find her more lovable if she's just like us. Mm-hmm. But that's a different mind than the early, earlier centuries had. They connected sin with moral impurity and usually sex. Mm-hmm. We just can't agree to that anymore. So, no, I don't, I, or do you believe he was really a human being, just like the rest of us, yes. He consciously realized his true relationship with God in Christ, but we can consciously realize it. Mm-hmm. Did he have to realize that he was the one and only? I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It seems to me not necessary that he knew he was one with the Father, yes, But even that realization, I believe, was gradual. And Luke's gospel seems to say that. He grew in wisdom, age, and grace. So there's room for development. But did he have to believe he was the one and only? I don't know. Yeah, I think that's one of the things I love about these type of conversations from the historical Jesus study, or even to name it as the historical Mary as well. It really kind of alleviates some of that uh the the real fleshiness of who jesus was and who Mm, mary was without having to wrestle with some of um like what was the context jesus lived in what was the religion he was in versus always just pairing him as the god man yeah then it it's harder to relate right (laughs) then it becomes like superhero jesus versus the the relatable one that i can really connect with yeah the son of man yeah it's almost an avoidance technique And that's why I have that chapter section, the great comma, Mm. that avoiding his real life, his real humanity, his real teaching by endlessly arguing about this complex of human and divine. Yeah. There's a place for it, but get over it (laughs) after a while. (laughs) Well, I mean, and that's, I think that's one of the things that's happening with, with what you're writing about, but also the collective interest in what you're writing about which is, are we ready to have the capacity for interpreting things at complex levels, which means it can be literal, it can be symbolic, it can be a metaphor, it can be mythical. Mm-hmm. All these levels of meaning can coexist. Yes. And the the need to, was it actually, did that factually happen? Did it actually, was the resurrection real? You know, it's like the need to clarify these questions in such a stark black and white dualistic way I think is starting to relax, but it's mm-hmm. hard. It's hard to do that when so much of the water that we're swimming in 
um, particularly in religion, still wants to clarify things at that literal level. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the facts and truth, right? Like, can the truth mm. exist without knowing all the facts? I used to even think about like oh. the way that. That's good. My oh, wife and I tell yeah. our, our story of how we met. Like, the facts are different, <laughs> but the truth is there, right? We each have like oh, our own lovely, storyteller's lovely, license lovely. to it. Right. Truth and facts. I'll take Thank her you. version. Yeah. <laughs> I would trust her more than me. Mm-hmm. So there's a follow-up question to this that um, that I think will speak for itself. Uh, when you speak of Trinity, do you mean Father Jesus Holy Spirit or Father Christ Holy Spirit? Well, I'm going to be picky, but neither of them. I mean Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And, and so it's closer to the Christ. But... Um, the reason father-son words were chosen is because they're relational. Mm-hmm. And if God is a relationship, inherently, we had to establish the centrality of relationship. Then in my understanding, the Holy Spirit is the personification of that relationship, which is given to us, planted within us. So, But I certainly would not say Father Jesus, Holy Spirit. Jesus did not exist from all eternity. I know that's shocking, but that's because we put Jesus Christ together. The Christ existed from all eternity, so I could live with that. But I think the best is preserve some, let's try this so they're not patriarchal. Lover, beloved. Lover, beloved. That's the the beginnings of the flow. And that flow is so infinitely true that it becomes itself. Mm -hmm. And that's called the Holy Spirit, which is shared with everything. Does that work? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's helpful um, to put it in terms of, to to think about those words not as the nouns they represent, but the relationships that they (laughs) verb. It's all about relationships. (laughs) Is that even right? (laughs) That they represent through the action of what they're doing. Um, That helps me a lot. Uh, Yeah, thank you. And that's unique to, uh, not unique, but starting with the Cappadocian fathers in the fourth century. They call them the relations, the relations. Mm -hmm. You must get the relations. The scholastics in the 12th and 13th century said the same thing. It was not the the substance, was the relations. Think about that for a minute. That substantial reality is a set of relations. Now, what do you and I have? The atom. (laughs) There it is. If you need a visualization... I know it's more complex than proton, electron, neutron. But in our own now physical way, we are saying the basic building block of reality is relationality. Yeah. <laughs> and if you destroy that, you have the atom bomb. Hmm. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Wow. It really you is. You can't destroy that. Yeah. You can't destroy absolute relationship. We've got such good, a good metaphysics, if I can call it that. But it was was projected onto God instead of understood as the pattern of everything. Mm -hmm. So speaking of that pattern of everything, um, being as you named an uh, eternal ultimate system of relationships, I want to pivot to a question about um, the role 
of of the crucifixion and resurrection than in that ultimate relationality. Uh, Matt from Greenville asks, um, from Greenville, South Carolina, so if Christ has been here from the start and everything, and yet Jesus was the full expression of God in human form, does everything still hinge on what Jesus did on the cross and resurrection? Or is Jesus's death and resurrection just a story to outline order, disorder, reorder, path, which I am intuiting he means is happening all the time anyway. Mm. So I guess just to kind of summarize what I think he's asking is what, what role then <coughs> does the, the crucifixion... The cross. Mm-hmm. the cross is a dramatic image, story, truth. Seems to be a historical happening. Uh, to communicate the universal pattern that has been true since the beginning of time. So in that sense, it doesn't hinge on it, except insofar as it is communicated by that. A lot of people began to surrender to the mystery of necessary suffering through gazing upon the cross. But in fact, necessary suffering was happening in the four mass extinctions, to keep picking on those. Mm -hmm. Necessary suffering has been the the shape of the universe. So he says it, seems to be getting it very well. Is Jesus' death and resurrection just a story to outline order, disorder, reorder? But we don't want to say just a story. It's a mythic, archetypal, classic, uh, you know, uh, compelling compelling story order disorder reorder is not compelling at least to the heart or to the soul to the mind maybe and that's why i use it to help the mind come along but the simple believer most of the world will never think philosophically like i was trained to think but those of you with a more major education Suddenly, order, disorder, oh, okay, my mind stops fighting it. But for most people in history, all God had to appeal to was the heart and the body and the instinct. Mm -hmm. And that the story of the cross and resurrection works, works very well. Yeah, Like it's the story, like the capital, the story of of this great relationality we're swimming in like i'm thinking about the fact that like love is order disorder reorder. very good there's no experience of life that doesn't have that there's no love relationship that doesn't go through disorder mm. yeah you got the only reason i hesitated on thee oh, okay. is a hindu uh, might say well we had vishnu and krishna and who am i missing uh who's the third god brahman uh, where they have the destroyer God too. So uh, we don't want to say we're the only ones who have this story. Right. You've heard me say this a hundred times. If it's true, it's true everywhere. <laughs> and so it will be discovered by other cultures in other symbolic systems. But uh, yeah, for us, this is the story that works. Yeah. This kind of brings us to the next question here from David from Australia. Um, listening to the podcast before, during, and after the Easter season, and therefore in parallel with the Easter readings, 
how do you think the apostles understood the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus? And what the Old Testament scriptures do you think Jesus and others referenced, especially given the ruling paradigm was the whole sacrificial system? When they say Jesus had to die, would their readers assume the Old Testament sacrificial system? I can just, this plays into me too with the last question on order, disorder, yes. reorder, and how would the disciples have viewed uh, the path that Jesus was taking? And would they have seen it in light of the Old Testament? Yeah, there's that story on the way to Emmaus and he opened all the scriptures. What we've usually assumed, rightly or wrongly, but it works, is he was <clears throat> referring to those passages in Isaiah that we call the suffering servant. Because those are pretty dramatic descriptions either laid onto Christ or uh, fulfilled in Christ, however you want to say it. The only frame they would have had to understand would have been the Hebrew scriptures. How, he couldn't have created a new frame for them in a short journey. Uh, if we're going to take the uh, disciples on the way to Emmaus, as the paradigm for this changing of paradigm. Uh, and I think that's why these words that have been so problematic for us, propitiation, atonement, sacrifice, paying the price, ransom, and a few others, made their way so strongly into the New Testament. Uh, because that was still the sacrificial system that made sense to them. Mm -hmm. That Jesus was undercutting all quid pro quo thinking. Mm -hmm. He was throwing them into a universe of mercy where there is no tit for tat anymore, where there's no counting or measuring or weighing. Now we know that from the parables of the, the equality between what you give and what you get is gone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But look, that has persisted strongly till our time in what we call retributive justice. This is the frame that the human mind prefers. Tit for tat. This much sin, this much suffering or merit. <laughs> uh, it is just very hard to get out of that frame until you yourself have experienced something coming from nothing. Mm -hmm. And that has to be experienced on the soul level, on the heart level, on the undeserved level. Uh, how can you manufacture that for people? Mm -hmm. I, I can't hate or pity people who aren't there anymore. They just, they just insist on some notion of purgatory or hell or, or uh, negative karma. Uh, it comes down to punishment. Evil is to be punished. Uh, that is hard to get out of the human psyche because it gives you a sense of logic, fairness. As you would describe fairness, probably so. I can understand that. So that's why the whole gospel story radically depends on, on being thrown into this ocean of mercy, where all boundaries disappear to where does God's love begin or, or end. 
That's normally an experience of undeserved forgiveness, undeserved love, really undeserved life. Mm. You and I didn't ask to exist. And here we are. It's all unmerited, undeserved. <clears throat> the utter, and I mean utter, U-T-T-E-R, utter gratuity of everything. And once you can sink into that quicksand of the utter gratuity of everything, you stop weighing, you stop measuring, and you stop counting. So that's why you know I love Therese's little statement. You know, God knows all sciences except mathematics. That woman was a genius. <laughs> you, you got in trouble for that one, by the way. There's a question. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. There? People were like, wait a second, Richard. Mathematics is the whole, you know, there wouldn't be music without mathematics. Oh, no there kidding. wouldn't be, you know, you can't. But I, I get what you mean no, yeah, and what she do. meant, right? Which is more that the transactional yeah. nature of this plus this equals this. Mm. And, that you, you know, the idea that you couldn't get more complex than that, which is yeah. profound. And remember, non-dual thinking is not the elimination of dualistic thinking. Right, right. We need dualistic mathematics, which is absolutely dualistic, <laughs> yeah. to explain a whole bunch of things. We're not excluding it. Yeah. But... You get to the world of the soul, you must move beyond your mathematics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Logical equations where two plus two equals four. This is something that, um, I don't know if it's something that Cynthia said about the word mercy, that she draws a, a, a comparison between the root of mercy and um, the root of merchant. So the idea of it being well. about exchange, that instead of it being a transaction, it's this flow between mm, very good um and I, it, that really helped me because i think the word mercy for me still feels it can i can interpret it through a more transactional language like almost like a pity like i take pity yes, on you yes, yes. but thinking about mercy as swimming in the abundance of the relationality that is unmerited uh that changes everything it, i can feel in my body how that Everything shifts my very um, the way that I breathe. Mm. It just relaxes me into a different orientation toward life. And it's I'll call it the big shift. Mm. Mm -hmm. And unless you make that, which can only be done by grace, uh, you will keep creating. He's worthy. She's unworthy by reason of physical good looks physical ability, intelligence. You'll create some category, which the mind always does, to create up and down, in and out. It never stops. <laughs> and it's very humiliating to see that in yourself. Uh, it's uh, Many days, my only prayer is, Lord, have mercy. Mm. Lord, have mercy. I, I don't know how to get out of this world of counting. And I'm a one. We love to count. <laughs> <laughs> and yet it never makes me happy. It never frees anybody else. Yeah. So, but even that gives me sympathy. Look at all I've been given in my life and even all the spiritual teaching and good theology. And I'm still counting. So when I see other people doing it again, okay. He hasn't fully drowned in the water of mercy yet, because uh, I haven't either. It, it, it gives you an exit clause mm. for everybody. 
not just for yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's so helpful to hear you say that there's no end to our judgmental there's nature. No end. <laughs> you know, it's oh. it, that and I think that is. It's like it that also helps to relax us into recognizing our humanity in this that okay, I'm doing it again. You know, I'm judging the crap out of that person Mm -hmm. right now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So speaking of this nature of, uh, speaking of um, our tendency to want to think in transactional terms, we had so many questions about atonement. Um, Mm -hmm. And a couple of them here, Rex from Hartford, Connecticut, and Melanie from Georgia. Uh, This one is from Rex, and I'll weave in Melanie's as well. He says, I grew up in a fairly fundamentalist church and the thought of a, a nonviolent atonement wasn't even in my imagination, which Melanie was also asking about um, in what you describe as the Franciscan option. So while this alternative way of thinking about the cross is both somewhat logical and appealing to me, I have a hard time reconciling so much of the biblical writer's interpretation of the cross. So this gets into this it's there. It's in the scriptures, this transactional language. So he starts listing, you know, yes. Isaiah 53 and Romans 3:23 through 26 and 2 Corinthians 5:21 and Galatians and 1 Peter, etc. And he goes as as gruesome as this concept seems. These all seem to paint a picture of a Jesus who had to die to atone mm. for my sins. So how do you, Richard, interpret these and other similar passages? I'm going to try. I hope this is because I don't understand sports. I hope this is correct use of the term. I'm going to try to do an end run and answer it in a little indirect way. It comes down to your understanding of causality. And until the modern period of history, the only notion of causality was what we call final cause and efficient cause. So everything is attributed to this cause that, and it, which does lend itself to transactional language. And I admit the Bible is filled with it, starting in the Hebrew scriptures, where Yahweh got angry, Yahweh scourged the Pharaoh. Uh, it's just the easier way to talk. It's the mythological way to talk, you know. Uh, believe me, this is a struggle for me because I know that the the little peasant from Guatemala picking up the Bible doesn't even know what the word causality means, nor does he or she need to. Uh, so they'll probably keep saying, you know, sin caused the cross and cross caused the liberation from sin. Uh, I can live with that. If the effect of God being an ogre is not, does not come along with it, and if a legitimation of le- legitimate torturing and suffering does not come along with it, and in the heart of a good person, it won't. You know, that's why a pure heart, a clean heart, as the Psalms say, is almost a precondition for you put the Bible in the hands of someone with a pure heart, they will do good with it. They really will. But you put the Bible in the hand of an angry, power-seeking person. I talk about this in the little red book on what do we do with the Bible. Mm-hmm. You put the Bible in the hand of an unconverted person is what it amounts to. And they will find these transactions. It, it, it is the nature of the language. 
at that point in history, even in the New Testament. This is problematic because I can't expect people to understand it the way I'm able to do it. But by final causality, we mean God. God made me do it. The devil made me do it. That's final causality. Efficient causality is the there's a direct line from God to this tornado this afternoon in Oklahoma. All right. Uh, that's just the easiest way for the mind to think before it grows in subtlety. The unfortunate thing is this is leading an awful lot of people to throw out the Bible when their mind moves beyond mythological thinking. Now you and I have had enough time to hold on to mythological thinking and knowing it's mythological and that mythological is not untrue. It's just a different level. <laughs> but how do we teach that to the little peasant in Nicaragua who doesn't have time for major education like you and I do? Uh, that worries me. Is each generation going to have to go through this? It, I fear that it, it will. Um, yeah. the, the issue of causality, I feel, is... Um almost the primary philosophical problem, if I could name it that, yeah. you know, in terms of, of how we experience suffering and evil, because, you know, the idea that something caused this, who caused this, what happened, who did this, why did this happen? Yes. Um, and I wonder if our collective desire to relax into trusting um, and, and understanding that suffering, difficulty, uh, death is part of this complex nature of this cosmos, it allows for a different orientation toward even how we think about Jesus and the cross. Because mm. then it's, yeah, he was, he was a nonviolent resistor to the empire. Of course he got killed, you know? Um, we can begin to frame it in more historical ways so that it's not just, okay, he died for our sins. You know, he died in order to, to save us. Um, but it doesn't exclude that either, no, as you that's said. Right. That's right. Um, but I, I just I find that that shift from the causal to just the process is something that I'm working on. I mean, I think about um, there was this giant tree in my backyard um, before I got divorced, and kind of in the middle of of my own process of grief, uh, making that decision. And one day. Um, that tree just collapsed. No kidding. And we discovered that the inside of the tree like was, was half hollow. rotted. Oh, yeah. So it was half dead and half alive. And I was having a conversation with my parents about that in very parallel well, uh, sure. way as processing my divorce Good and me saying, metaphor, yeah, yeah um, why, why? Like, why did this, why does this have to happen? Or why can't I fix my marriage? Why can't I just make it better? And I'll never forget my mom saying, it's like that tree, you, you didn't make it happen and you couldn't have stopped it, hmm. you know? Your mother said that. Yeah. How dear is she, my goodness. You know, it could, have, it could have lived another 20 years or it could have collapsed on your house. Hmm. It didn't collapse that way, it collapsed this the way. way. And somehow something about that very visual metaphor 
was very helpful for me in my own grief and something I've come back to a lot, you know, that there, there may not be a direct causal line to these things, but somehow in our acceptance of it, um, I don't know, it's, it it's can yield something else of excellent. life. Yeah. You know, another thing we're drawing from science, you've all read this and it's completely counterintuitive that watching a measurement changes the outcome. You've heard that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they insist it's true. They insist it's, I still don't understand that. How can that be true? Watching it changes the out. Well, that's what you just said. Yeah. Your ability to see this, is this the core meaning of faith? Our participation in the event, seeing it as made true for me by that symbol of the half-rotted tree, allows it to be transformative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. God, it works. It really works. Uh, the way I said it for years was just people who, who believe in angels experience angels. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like the, Isn't that interesting? What does that mean? The observer impacts reality uh -huh. by... How, what is it you say? You know, reality is... Um, you can only be received... In the manner of the observer, uh, of the yes, receiver. Yes, 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 of course. Uh, say it better because I just butchered uh, it. Everything that is received is received according to the manner of the receiver. There it is. Yeah, it always comes through my filter. And now what we're saying is we're adding a little, my filter matters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and to receive it, you know, I think we all know people. I know people who are really good people. I'll use it because it's so common in America today. Their normal stance toward everything is the victim stance. Mm. Sometimes I think it's half of America. Mm. And if that's your filter, I did not deserve this, and you need to pay me back because I had to suffer this. I, I just see now at the end of my life, people who played this victim game 40 years ago, they're still playing it. It's become the storyline of their whole life. Always there has to be a victim, and I guess it's me, and someone's got to pay because I've had to suffer. Mm. And they can be uh, eternally upset over race relations, gender relations. Uh, it's, it's a refusing to take responsibility for evil. For sin, I will not, I will stand above it and judge it. Don't ask me to carry any of this unjust suffering. Uh, I would easily say over the years, not that I do as much counseling as I used to, but I would say a third of the people I've worked with in counseling, that's where they're trapped. Mm. They cannot let go of I deserve and I didn't deserve. And it's a dead end because they will apply that to every new scenario. What a freedom to get out of that. None of us deserve, or Jesus could have said, I don't deserve. But boy, if, if you're trapped there, you're trapped there. Maybe I'm repeating myself, forgive me. Uh, it's a hard trap to get out of. Mm -hmm. It really is. Well, it seems to get at that um, 
the the ways in which we try to build identity around a static right. noun right. or uh, and a, a static identity, a static sense of self. When what this conversation is moving us into is an idea of process, of relationship, of um, of how our interior stance influences what we become and what we see and how we relate. And so I think what I what I what I'm hearing you say is that um, that line from Jim Finley, which I love, "You are not what has been done to you," oh, yeah. mm-hmm. which is that ultimately, <clears throat> despite the great so injustices simple. that are true, right? Um, the oppression that exists, the sexism, the racism, all those things, that there is an inner point of freedom beyond that that has to do with this flow of moving out of a mentality that keeps us imprisoned or static or internalized in what has been done to us. Yep, you said it. Uh, That is almost a a perfect line. You are not what has been done to you. That's giving this system far too much power. Did you have any identity previous to that? Now, in this secular culture, most people don't have any identity previous to that. They started creating identity when people started persecuting them. Now, I don't want to be glib about that. It must be very easy to do if you've been a slave all your life. Uh, I've got a Franciscan friend who's working over in Vietnam, and he's saying he just can't believe it. Uh, there's none of this, your country screwed us in the Vietnam culture today. He says they are the most happy, faith-filled people. And their answer is, that's the past. Uh, he says it's, it's a culture of forgiveness. Mm. And we have a culture of paying the price, mm. even on the left, mm. in very for- various forms of political correctness. A naming the perpetrator. And there's truth to that. But when do you let go of it? Because it's become an albatross around your neck, you know? Because mm-hmm. uh, the past is not going to go away. We white people enslave black people. Wrong, 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 wrong. But don't let that be your identity. Or you've got a negative identity. So you've got to find an identity deeper than that, previous to that, while integrating that disorder. So order, I am who I am in God, positive. Disorder, this damn thing of slavery happened. Um, Now when I can put that order together with that disorder, I have moved into reorder. And Jesus seemed to be, that seemed to be the, the thrust of his entire ministry of healing. Entire. You are not what they say you are. You are not what has been done to you. Mm. You are not this paralyzed person, this person who doesn't belong, That's this excellent. sinful excellent. woman. You are, you are more than that. He seemed to be moving us into the recognition of our oneness with God as our original identity. Boy, that's going to help loads of people, what you just said to recognize why there's so many healing stories in the New Testament. Yeah. That's a good, solid interpretation. Why Jesus doesn't punish people, he heals people. Mm. Yeah. Okay, Richard, um, this is from Catherine from Wales. Uh, I will not do a Welsh accent. Um, <laughs> she says that in listening to Podcast 9 and thinking about the personal Jesus and Cosmic Christ, 
I'm thinking about how can I remember to and recognize in my neighbor the person or persons I am with in any given moment, the cosmic Christ, whom I love wholly, or at least desire to, albeit poorly, whilst loving my neighbor as Jesus, who I love wholly, or at least desire to, albeit poorly. I'm thinking about how can it benefit recognizing the Christ in another and practicing, including and transcending, accepting where they are at, knowing and trusting they are more, and maybe encouraging the more they are in the sense of being like salt for each other to bring out the Christ flavors in each other. Hmm. Can Richard talk about the That's balance nice. between the personal Jesus and the universal Christ and how it affects the relationship when our, doing our best to, to love our neighbor? In gratitude for the book and the mirror. What's the X mean? Like Good a, question. Like oh. XO would be like a kiss and a hug. Oh, oh. This might just be just a kiss or just, <laughs> just a hug. Just a kiss. I didn't just, get a hug. Just sending a big kiss. <laughs> Thank you, Catherine. Okay, okay. Wow. You know, I, I don't know if I really make this point clear enough at all, but I, I certainly don't make it strongly till the second half of the book. And um, one of my theses is that we've got to keep the two in really good balance. Now that will come naturally by grace. Jesus being the personal, Christ being the universal. Jesus being the intimate and the urgent the cosmic being the uh, long-distance historical. Now, by temperament, some of us need more one than the other. Uh, but I do think we're offering people a, a good uh, religion, <laughs> if I can call it that, in offering people both, but asking them to differentiate them and then overcome the differentiation. She taught me something in the way she asked the question. Was it that salt line? Yes. How would you know that was going to be the one? <laughs> Encouraging the more they are in the sense of us being like salt for each other to bring out the Christ flavor. That's really lot nice. Mm -hmm. I like that. Uh, that the Christ flavor is already the objective identity. But until someone sees it, names it, honors it, respects it, in me, I can't see it in myself, which is, I guess, why she mentions the mirror at the end. And it, it is why I put the mirror in there. You know, in one of the early iterations of the book, I had used the word mirror too much, already starting toward the beginning. And the editor said, I don't think most people will be able to follow you. So I just ended with that major piece at the end. But it, it is received as resonance, as mirroring. If you three, and you clearly are rather loving people, then you better thank somebody for that. You know, mm. you had a little mommy, a little daddy, a little mommy who gazed at you as a little Paul and uh, said, you're just the cutest thing in all the world. And... Uh, if that wasn't given to you, it wasn't received. It had to be given. That's what that quid quid recipitur line meant. Everything is received. With the exception that there's one implanted mirror. 
And that's the soul. That's the mm. divine identity. But there has to be an inner resonance with an outer mirror, an outer one who's saying it's true. Mm -hmm. Talk about a relational universe. Huh? That we're all just a hall of mirrors, mirroring the truth and mirroring the lie about one another. So uh, I, I think if I read this rather humbly asked question, I think she's right on. Even her including and transcending. She's got it in the proper order now. The more I can see, the more I can include, the more I have, in effect, transcended. Are, are you hearing any question in there that I missed? No, but I was thinking about um, a throwback to last season as far as the way we used to end it. Just to ask you, in, in reference to this question, who has been the salt that has brought the Christ flavors out into your life this past, say, week or so? The past week. Hmm. You know, I think uh, my assistant, Elias, went home to Mexico uh, to visit his dying mother. Uh, and uh, I just didn't realize how much I depended upon him. He's one of these people who's a natural nurse. Mm -hmm. Some people could do nursing easily. A lot of us do it awkwardly. And I realized with him not here all last week, uh, there was like a big gaping mirror. Uh, it was just such a relief to have him back. Uh, it gave me it gave me great comfort, not just to my physical body, but to his ability to be present in such a nurturing way. Is that not what married couples are made for? Mm -hmm. Now to rise to that occasion, I'm sure, takes a lifetime of forgiving and and so forth. But yeah, I, I had it this past week from Elias. He was become a. a a staff person and one of his major jobs is to take care of me when I can't take care of myself. Yeah, he would have been the mirror the last week. Thank you, Richard. And that's it for today's episode of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr. This podcast is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation. Thanks to the generosity of our donors. The beautiful music you're listening to is provided by Bird Talker. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. To learn more about the themes of the Universal Christ, visit universalchrist.org. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.